Today, I'm joined by guest co-host Dylan O'Connell, current fourth-year PhD student in the Department of Statistics uh, and Data Science at Yale. So fourth year means you're hard at work in the middle of writing your dissertation. So Dylan, what type of research are you working on? Hey, Susan. It's uh, awesome to be here. So I've been a fan of the podcast since the first episode, and so I sprang at the opportunity to guest host. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> One of the original fans. So while I love talking about all types of statistics, uh, my research uh, these days is in mixture models. So like the short elevator pitch I'd give is that um, like for some common distributions, it's very easy to generate a sample from them. But uh, if you mix a bunch of those distributions together, that task becomes very difficult. And uh, often Often these mixtures are a really useful way of modeling heterogeneous populations. So I'm researching techniques which can compute them more efficiently. But today I'm actually here to talk about polling and how we deal with uncertainty. Well, cool. We'll have to invite you back sometime to hear about your research. But let's get started with today's topic. So it probably feels like coverage of the 2020 Democratic primary has dominated the news cycle for an eternity. <laughs> but <laughs> We're still 15 months away from the election, believe it or not. So the public demands media coverage of the horse race, but deep down, they really want to know the answer to one question before anything else, and that's who will win. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel deceived by the news outlets and polls from the last presidential election. And speaking for myself, I think that's caused me to take a more proactive approach in considering what's up on the menu, so to speak, for this upcoming election, and hence primary. Yeah, needless to say, when it comes to forecasting outcomes of primaries, statisticians play an essential role. Almost every popular predictive model uses public opinion polling as its foundation. The premise of polling is a perfect match for statistical techniques. We can't talk to every eligible voter in America, but we can talk to a finite number of them and use statistics to draw inferences about the whole group. And there's a lot of science behind setting up a good poll, like how many people do you talk to in order to get a good sample? Where do you find them? And what do you do when people you poll don't want to participate? Yeah, and because of the complexity here, polling has become a very robust industry in the United States, with dozens of firms offering their own twists on the approach, and political forecasters use these to tell people what to expect. But today, I'm not here to talk about polling in general, or even the 2020 race. Rather, I want to walk us through a recent case study in polling that explores how we grapple with uncertainty, and in particular, outliers. These challenges are actually fundamental to the work that statisticians and scientists of all stripes do. So what's the story? So each month, Monmouth University conducts and releases a poll of, de of the Democratic primary field. So um, there's a couple weeks back, on August 26th, they released their latest update with the top line result being a virtual three-way tie for first place. They had Bernie Sanders at 20%, Elizabeth Warren at 20%, and Joe Biden at 19%. This caused quite a stir. Um, just one month before, uh, the same Monmouth poll painted an entirely different picture, and it had Biden at 32%, Warren at 15%, and Sanders at 14%. Yeah, that's a huge difference. In that prior poll, Biden looked to have twice as much support as Warren or Sanders. But as you say, it's still early. So I imagine these stages of primary campaign are quite volatile. Yeah, exactly. And there had even been a highly publicized debate in between these two polls. So by itself, a large post-debate string would hardly be unprecedented. But this was particularly surprising because it diverged from more recent polls by other organizations. 
And there are websites online that keep track of polling results done by different organizations, so you can compare results across different polls at any given point in time. Yeah, so for example, the website Real Clear Politics um, provides a running average of all the primary polls. And on August 26th, the date of the three-way tie poll release, they listed Biden at 26.6%, Sanders at 18.2%, and Warren at 16%. This still shows a Biden slump, but it's a very different scenario. So the Monmouth poll was unusual relative to others that came out around the same time. Yeah, exactly. So the release of the Monmouth poll caused quite a stir, and news outlets were quick to react. In fact, this was the first poll tracked by Real Clear Politics with a non-Biden lead since a singular Emerson poll back in April, which gave a very slight edge to Bernie. So here are some of the sample headlines from the immediate aftermath of this poll release. So CNN titled their piece with, Monmouth poll, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren in three-way lead for Democratic bid. And The Hill was a bit more dramatic, writing that a new poll shows Biden falling badly, three-way tie for Democratic lead. But the LA Times was a bit more circumspect. They titled their piece, Biden, Sanders, and Warren are tied for the lead in one poll, Biden's on top in another. So the other outlets did correctly report the results of the Monmouth poll, but the LA Times went a bit further and added a discussion of its context. And it's worth quoting from their explanation. They write in the piece that a Monmouth University poll released Monday showed Sanders and Warren effectively tied with Biden, but the survey has a large margin of error and is an outlier compared with other recent national polls, which have usually shown Biden with a lead several points. So the margin of error is effectively a yardstick for the degree of precision. The larger it is, the more the true result can be expected to differ from the point estimate. And they further say, the survey has a 5.7% margin of error, suggesting that more polling is needed to confirm whether a shift is really taking place in the race and whether Biden, Sanders, and Warren are as competitive as they appear. So we'll cover this margin of error further below, but they close with a quote from Patrick Murray, who is the Monmouth polling director, and says that Murray acknowledged the poll's unusual result, adding, quote, it's important to keep in mind that this is just one snapshot from one poll. So how many people were sampled in the Monmouth poll? How is it conducted? Do they provide us any more context behind the numbers? So their official press release states, the Monmouth University poll was conducted by telephone from August 16th to August 20th, 2019, with 800 adults in the United States, Results in this release are based on 298 registered voters who identify as Democrats or lean towards the Democratic Party, which has a plus or minus 5.7 percentage point sampling margin of error. So we're back to the margin of error, 5.7% again. Yes. So they further specify that for results based on the Democratic voter sample, one can say with 95% confidence that the error attributable to sampling has a maximum margin of plus or minus 5.7 percentage points, unadjusted for sample design. Basically, this states that if you followed their methodology, random chance alone would cause their estimates to differ from the true population proportions by over 5.7 percentage points about 5% of the time. And by the way, if you ever get tired of writing out the usual formulaic explanation of a confidence interval, you should give Dylan's rendition a try. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the further caveat that these estimates take an idealized view of their polling methodology, and issues under the hood and how they reweight the sample can make it even worse. Okay, so brushing the numbers aside, polls aren't designed to get 
things right every time. The results of each poll will vary due to chance by way of randomly selecting voters. In the same way that it's possible, though rare, to flip a coin 10 times and all get heads, uh, it is possible that we might get a sample of 300 individuals who respond in a way that is not reflective of the general sentiment. Yes, and while we can hope for better accuracy with a large enough sample size, you can imagine that sampling is very expensive. Yeah, and chasing down someone to answer a question about you know, who they'd really vote for, that's really hard. Yeah, so the solution then is not to just dwell on any one poll in isolation. Instead, we should look at them in aggregate because it's less likely that they're all wrong. So if there's a real trend, it will be reflected in the aggregate averages. News organizations have every incentive to report on each poll as if they're definitive because that makes for interesting stories that people want to click on. Biden falling badly is more exciting than the mixed message that the LA Times reports, but many new polls are released each week. Even if each individual poll is likely to be within its margin of error, over time, it's a near certainty that some number of these will be outliers. So outliers are every data scientist's nightmare, right? They just don't fit the story, or they change the story, and we don't know if we should take them seriously or just throw them out. And this brings us back to our story, specifically the matter of how to deal with outliers. The discourse over this poll continued for about two days before Monmouth released their own statement on the matter. It makes some excellent points, so the full statement is worth a look, but I'll read out some highlights here. So they write that, as other polls of the 2020 Democratic presidential primary have been released this week, it is clear that the Monmouth University poll published Monday is an outlier. This is the product of the uncertainty that is inherent in the polling process. And the statement then goes on to say, I understood when we released our poll that the picture it painted diverged from the others. This is the sixth time this year Monmouth has conducted a national poll of the 2020 Democratic field. We use the same methods in each case. So I just want to say that I really like the transparency that's embodied by uh, this statement and also including parts that Dylan didn't get to read. It really goes on to say that the polling mechanism behind the Monmouth polls just hasn't changed. The distribution of demographics hasn't changed and so on. So really, there's, there's no foul play. There's nothing that was done wrong from an experimental perspective here. Yeah, and the statement acknowledges that the results are different from other polls but that there are no methodological flaws, and therefore they are obligated to release it to the public like any other poll. And this full statement is an excellent summary of the inherent uncertainty in polling, but it also addresses a more nuanced question. If they are certain that this is a result is an outlier, why don't they just fix it? Like That's the issue I find particularly interesting here, and perhaps the best way to discard the discussion is to quote one such criticism. So, John Anzalone is a pollster and political strategist with 20 years of experience, currently working for the Biden campaign. He responded to the Monmouth statement on Twitter, writing, and I quote, I appreciate this statement acknowledging at Monmouth poll was an outlier, but I disagree with, quote, in the end, we must put out the numbers we have, unquote. When our firm comes out of the field and we believe we have an outlier, we shit can the numbers and redo our poll at our own expense, period. Did someone in the Biden campaign just use the S word? Yeah, so I think so. So despite that, <laughs> this is a fascinating comment, and there's a lot to unpack here. And the issues extend beyond polling to the same common misguided tendencies that are so tempting when it comes to statistics in general. So we just said the above poll was an outlier, right? So surely it's responsible, irresponsible for Monmouth to publish it. And a suggested remedy surely can't hurt because more data just gives us more information. 
And there are a variety of reasons this is an extremely bad idea. The central question here is, what makes us think that this poll is an outlier and how should we deal with them? So Wikipedia defines an outlier as, quote, a data point that differs significantly from other observations, which is intentionally vague. Outliers matter because many common measurements that we use are highly influenced by them. There's a story, which may well be apocryphal, that a UNC geography professor in the 80s boasted to students that the average starting salary for graduates in their department was a whopping $250,000. And this probably sounds completely implausible until I remind everyone that Michael Jordan was one of only a few recent geography alumni from the department in those years. So I can't find any verifiable account that a professor actually said this, but it makes for a great anecdote about the influence of outliers. Yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> so we pay attention to outliers because they have outsized impact on our measurements. But there are two types of outliers and each have to be treated differently. First, outliers may result from unusual but natural variability. Even if we think that heights are normally distributed, there are 7.5 billion people on Earth. Through random chance alone, there may be some giants among us. There's going to be the Shaquille O'Neal's, the Yao Ming's, etc. And the other type is that of data error. So anyone who has worked with real-world datasets will be acutely familiar with this. You might have a list of athletes and their heights, and in addition to the occasional very tall person, you might see someone listed at zero inches. And this is clearly impossible, and it's not hard to guess what happened. Um, there was just an error in the creation of the data itself. So as statisticians, we're constantly asked, what should I do with outliers? And this is a much more complex question than anything we can cover here on the show. And it varies depending on the context. I mean, if it were easy, we'd be out of a job. Uh, but the simplest answer we can give is that you need to try and differentiate between these two situations. So specifically, if you have a convincing reason that the data point is an error, you should likely remove it so it doesn't influence your results. But if it's more likely that it can be explained by natural variability, removing it will cause you to understate the variability of your data. So when a person is listed at zero inches tall, it's very easy for us to imagine the mechanism that human error for to explain the entry. This is not the same as a result that we simply think is unusual. In the case of no data error, the data, you know, they're just naturally unusual, it's a bit more complicated. So going back to the UNC story, I would argue that in a department where you have a single astronomically paid alum, the mean starting salary is just a terrible statistic to quote anyway. And when people say that you can lie with statistics, this is how, right? This is what they're talking about. So maybe throwing the basketball star out entirely is deceptive in a different way. Maybe I would settle for just reporting the median here. Yeah, of course. We always need to adjust to the situation at hand. So going back to the Monmouth poll, we didn't think it was an outlier because we spotted some mechanism for error. We just thought the result was unusual. This is exactly what the Monmouth polling director addresses. He's confident that they followed consistent methodology, and this discrepancy should be attributed to random chance. It's worth noting that Monmouth historically is a very effective pollster. 538 gave them a grade of A+. Only six pollsters earned that distinction, and Monmouth has released the most polls of all of them. So if we're not just going to listen to the results of the poll anyways, why shouldn't we just discard the poll and try again, as Anzalone proposes? First, it just prevents us from detecting surprising events. If there was a shocking change in this race, no pollster would be willing to be the first to speak up. Second, there is the issue of transparency, highlighted in Monmouth's statement. 
If we discard outlier polls, we will be very overconfident in our results, because it seems like they all agree. These are roughly the points raised by Nate Thur Silver, who runs 538, in a series of tweets where he responded to John Anzalone's original tweetedism. That's an excellent point. If we make it a practice to shame anyone who dares report an unusual result, we would just create a numerical echo chamber in political polling. Exactly. And a final and perhaps the most subtle piece of the story has to do with sample size. Conventional thought on this? Bigger is better. But bigger is also more costly. Those are both definitely true. But as we said from the start, the fundamental challenge for polling is the fact that each call is expensive, which restricts us to relatively small samples. And the morning of the Monmouth poll release, Anzalone had a different rebuttal, citing a morning consult poll released on the same day. He wrote, quote, New at morning consult poll of N equals 17303 Democratic primary voters, slightly more than the N equals 298 interviews of the debate qualifying Monmouth poll that had everyone in uproar this morning. So he's absolutely right that the sample size of 298 is a weakness of the Monmouth poll, but he's act wrong to act like the size is irrelevant compared to the huge morning consult poll, which queued um, 17,000 Democratic voters. There's a reason that pollster quality is based on much more than just raw sample size, and no number of additional phone calls can fix the inherent bias in a sample. So recall that 538 gave Monmouth an A+, and it only gives morning consult a B-. So sampling methodology is really important. You might be able to get a lot more respondents by doing online polling, uh, which I think Morning Consult does, but yes. online polling is just notoriously inaccurate. So taking the time to ensure that you tap into a more representative sample at the cost of maybe reaching out to a fewer number of people can actually be worth it. Absolutely. And even before the days of online polling, there's a true story that dates all the way back to 1936 that uh, covers this pretty well. So every presidential election, the Literary Digest, a huge magazine, conducted this enormous poll by mail, and it accurately predicted the four previous presidential elections that led up to 1936. And as that presidential campaign reached its final stage, they tallied an enormous sample of 2.3 million responses, and they predicted that Alf Landon would win in a landslide. As you probably don't remember the tenure of President Alf Landon, clearly this was disastrously wrong. And in the same period, a man named George Gallup, whose last name you probably recognize in polling today, ran a poll of a mere 50,000 voters and correctly predicted the Roosevelt win. So what happened? Was the Literary Digest poll just an outlier? And with a sample size of 2.3 million, it's highly unlikely. Instead, the survey responses were likely poor representatives of the actual voting population. They found most of their addresses in telephone directories, and back in 1936, phones were generally luxury items reserved for the affluent. They also had a high rate of non-response, and there's no reason to think that the choice to respond to such a letter isn't associated with your choice for president. On the other hand, George Gallup helped pioneer the use of quota sampling, where he adjusts for the bias in responses by reweighting the sample to match the known voting population. Almost all modern polls do something similar, although unsurprisingly, approaches have grown more sophisticated over time. For sure. And this is what Monmouth is referring to when they say they refuse to, quote, adjust the weighting, unquote, of their poll just because of the surprising result. If Monmouth wanted to publish a poll that fit the expectations of the masses, it would be easily to adjust the weighting scheme post hoc. It would probably be easy to come up with the justifications for why it even makes sense, but it would also undermine our ability to interpret their polls from month to month. 
So in short, sample size is not the only factor when determining poll quality. And this leads us to the second point about sample size, and this one is perhaps the most subtle. While more data is always better, it's dangerous to adjust how much data you collect based on your observed results. So if we take a more generous view of what Anzalone suggests, and rather than throw out the outlier poll, we just gather more data to investigate further, this can still complicate our inference. So Monmouth proudly stated they refuse to do this. The problem is that if you only gather more data when the results conflict with your prior beliefs, you bias the results towards those prior beliefs. Think of it this way. Whenever you find evidence you agree with, you accept it. And whenever you find evidence you disagree with, you check it over and over again until you're totally sure. In this case, you're ruling out one type of error and not the other. We actually discussed an instance where this was done in episode 17 on how the former blood testing company Theranos was repeatedly throwing out uh, just blood test results that they didn't like in order to reduce the variability in the reports. Um, this is, you know, sort of caving into confirmation bias, and look where that got them. So good scientific practice in insists that all aspects of the experiment be planned in advance. If they gather evidence ad hoc until they get satisfactory results, those results can't easily be trusted. And this is a much deeper topic than we could ever cover in one show, but in the show notes, we'll link to a short introduction to the issue, and there's a lot more to learn on this. All right, so let's sum things up a little bit. So first, individual polls are fallible, and you should use their aggregate among many pollsters to detect trends. So both 538 and Real Clear Politics do a professional job of exactly this. Yes, and if you confidently attribute an, hour, an outlier to genuine error, you should likely exclude it from your analysis. But if you don't have a plausible mechanism for that error, and it is more likely explained by the natural variability of the data, you need to account for that in your analysis. And finally, when running a poll or an experiment, you should stick to the plan you set in advance. If you adjust your methods based on what you observe, you'll bias your results. Awesome. So I think we've now prepped our listeners to better interpret polling data. And this is kind of a really good time to have that in, in your <laughs> toolkit. So thanks for enlightening us, Dylan. Thanks, Susan.